Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Who is in you, whom you have from God. I talked about this earlier, and you are not your own. You've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So what does he require? We offer these bodies a living sacrifice. We offer the sacrifice of praise. We come to him offering what he's bought, what he's purchased for his use and his pleasure. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message entitled, The Day of Salvation. We will finish up chapter 19 of the book of Luke, and we will begin where we left off yesterday in verse 24. Finishing up our look at the parable of the Minas, we will then move into the triumphal entry, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and his cleansing of the temple. So let's listen in. The age-abiding principle here, and it's the principle we, we want to always get, is that God expects some return on his investment. He knows what we're capable of. He knows what he's entrusted to us. And he's just waiting to see, well, and giving us opportunity to show that we'll be faithful with the things he's given us. The principle, it's simple. You use it or you lose it. And we get to see that in the latter part of all this. He says to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one with 10. But they said, master, he has 10. I mean, they're like, this makes no sense. He has one, nothing happens with it. You give it to the guy with 10, why? Because, well, he did good with one. Now he has 11. And so, you know, he's going to do something with what's entrusted to him this time. And then he says, I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, but for, from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. It's again that use it or lose it principle. And, and we all see it. You know, it's true physically. If you're young, all you have to do is eat and exercise and you build all kinds of muscle. As you get old, that muscle just starts going away. In fact, a lot of freaky things happen. Get ready. I mean, it's like I used to be five foot 11. Now I'm like five foot 10 and I'm afraid to see what comes next. It's like you start compressing, but not only do you compress, you start widening out and you lose muscle mass. So you keep growing but just not in the ways you were hoping. But, but this issue of muscle mass, it's an important issue. And, and I know some of you are very young and you're like, yeah, it's just cool. You can just build it. You just work out. It happens. As you get older again, you lose it. And if you don't exercise, it's just you know, accelerated. The, the loss and the lack of strength and all those things, they just happen quicker and quicker. So we, we see it in the physical. I could give you a dozen other principles but, or, or examples, but the, the issue really here is whatever it is, we're a steward of it. These bodies belong to the Lord. We're told we have been bought with a price and we are not our own. So we're to glorify God with these bodies. And so we need to take care of them and, and to the best of our ability, make them available to the Lord to uh, use us. Um, the second issue here is the certainty of Jesus' return. 
Not only is there the use it or lose it principle, but there is the certainty of Jesus returning. We'll focus on this as we get to the end of Luke's gospel because it'll be a major theme, not just his death or resurrection or the teaching prior to the ascension, but the, the uh, promises related to his second coming. It's an absolute certainty. The same Jesus, this same Jesus, will come again and establish his kingdom on this earth. And then the coming judgment, and you should know, and most of you are aware, every one of us will stand in judgment before the Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus, your works of, uh, you know, your works are being judged. And when he returns, you will be rewarded for those works. Not just what we did, but the motivation for doing it, the manner in which we did it. But we will have our works tested and tried. And then, well, we'll be rewarded for those things that remain. If you're an unbeliever, it's a more serious issue because your sins, well, Jesus died for your sins and mine on the cross. But if you never come to faith in him, if you never turn and repent from your sins and of your sins, well, then it will be your own sin that will be judged at his return. It's a judgment that takes place a thousand years after the judgment of believers works. But it's one that no believer is at only unbelievers are judged there and, and no one escapes that judgment. There's no second chance. There's no, you know, give me another opportunity. So the issue is you are going to stand in judgment. It's which judgment? The judgment where your works are tested because your sins have already been judged or the one where you reject his offer of pardon and forgiveness only to find now you have to pay for those sins. And by the way, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God, everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, we come to an event in verse 28 that is so important. It was prophesied in the Old Testament and promised or, or, or written down in all four Gospels. And so uh, we read here in verse 28, when he'd said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he's rejoined that trek of people headed up for the Passover feast. And, uh, and we get into the passage that actually celebrates, well, we'll be celebrating it in just a few weeks, Palm Sunday. It came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. As they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? They said, the Lord has need of him. Now, this is relatively simple. It could be a real mystical deal where, where, you know, they go and they say the Lord needs them. And they're like, oh, OK, the Lord needs them. Or it could have been as simple as he's like, hey, next time I come through town, I'm going to want to borrow a donkey. And if that's what's happening, either way, whether he prepared in advance or somehow just moved on these people's heart to be generous and let him take the donkey. It's so essential that we get 
what's taking place here is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, if the people with the donkey were aware of Zechariah 9.9, hopefully they were, they would have been very excited to hear Jesus is passing through. Hey, it's almost the Passover. He wants to borrow our donkey. Why? Because Zechariah 9.9 said, behold, your king comes riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And so, so here you have it. He says it's got to be a donkey that's never been ridden. We have a friend that was sharing in between the services with me that, that uh, he's actually training a donkey. And I've actually been around these things. We used to have horses and, and a lot of, well, we had a little menagerie, geese and goats and chickens and ducks. And it was Pam's dream house. It was my nightmare. But, uh, but anyway, I, I lived through it. I did really enjoy it. I have to admit it. But, but uh, while we didn't own any donkeys, we were around them and aware of them. And, and one of the things I know about donkeys is they are just some of the stubbornest creatures on the planet. And this is important because Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and one reason for that is, of course, Zechariah. He's fulfilling prophecy. But the other thing is, when he comes again, we know he won't be riding a donkey. He'll be riding a white horse, Revelation chapter 19. Why the difference? Well, when a king came in peace, he'd ride a donkey. I mentioned that they're stubborn. Here's why you would never ride a donkey if you were coming in war. Because you, you could see the enemy coming saying, okay, giddy up or let's go or hit the road or whatever you say to donkeys. And that thing like Balaam's donkey could just turn and say, not going to happen, you know, and... You don't want to be in battle with an animal that's more stubborn than you are. And so the bottom line is, though, this had to be a donkey because he's coming in peace. It had to be a donkey because Zechariah prophesied it. The other issue, and this is what my friend was sharing, is that, that um, there's a short window at that point where a donkey is old enough to be ridden but hasn't already been broken or ridden. And that's the window that Jesus just happens, the timing just happens to be perfect. These people just happen to have that donkey. And so they readily offer him up again. If they were aware of the prophecies, they're like, hey, we got to go. This is going to be awesome. This is it. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. And we'll come back to it because Zechariah 9.10 has a lot more to say about what happens next. Not here, but what happens next from our lives on. Well, in any case, the Lord has need of them. They bring him to Jesus. They began throwing their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are basically heralding him as the Messiah. And Jesus is allowing himself to be publicly worshipped. Up to this point, if anyone worshipped him, and some had, it was always personal, it was private, it was one-on-one. -on -one. And he'd say, hey, keep this to yourself. You got it. You figured it out. It's true. But now he's openly and willingly allowing all these people to worship him. Listen, if Jesus were not 
the Messiah, if he were not the Savior, if he were not the Son of God, this would have been blasphemous and punishable by death. And that's what some of the religious leaders are all freaking out over. They've already determined or decided, at least in their minds, he's not the Messiah, he's not the one, he's not the Savior. And they did understand what many today deny, and that is for Jesus to be the Savior, the Messiah, he had to be God. He had to be God the Son. Why? Because in Isaiah, again and again, God says, listen, I'm God and there is no other. I create and I save and, 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 and I, and, and there is no other. There is no one before me. There'll be none after me. I am the only God. I am the Savior. Then Jesus comes and, and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the only door. Well, Jesus here is allowing them to acknowledge him as Messiah, which means they were acknowledging him as the Son of God. And when he is charged, not by the Romans, because they don't crucify people for thinking they're the Son of God or saying that. They just think he's another, you know, nutcase. But the religious leaders, they believe that this is blasphemous. And again, it would have been if it weren't all true. Now, each gospel gives us a record of, uh, of their cries, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna and the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. John gives us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Now we actually have insight that John lacked at that point. Jesus wasn't just the king of Israel. He's king of kings and lord of lords and he'll rule and reign forever and ever. We know that because we have the rest of the story. But the issue here is that that these people are crying out and heralding Jesus as Messiah, as savior, as king. Up on the walls of the city, the, the guards who are looking out over this massive mob, the, the religious leaders who would be there, you know, if there's a giant parade, if you can get a high point to watch the whole thing, that's a great vantage point. You have to know different things are going on in the hearts of different people. The Romans, they had to be getting a kick out of this. They'd say, hey, come and check this out. Why? Here's Jesus riding a little donkey and people are throwing their clothes down and they're saying, save now, save now. And they're like, can you believe this? Look at this. You see, for the Romans, when they had a great celebration, when, when, when somebody conquered or came back to Rome and they were being acknowledged or heralded, it was like, It'd be like the Olympic. Remember when, when the Olympics were in China just what last year, the year before? And, and they had that massive millions of people celebration. It was like that in Rome or, 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 you know, New Year's down in New York or London or some major city like that. Just people everywhere lining the streets and celebrating. And while this seems like a big thing to us and spiritually it is. To the Romans, it probably just looked comical. To the religious leaders, not so funny. 
Because again, they saw this as a real threat and something now they would be forced to deal with. Do you know that they'd already determined that they didn't want to arrest Jesus during the feast because there were so many people following after him. But Jesus is forcing their hand by receiving worship and, and letting these things happen. So the Pharisees show up, some of them, verse 39, calling to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The people are calling him savior. The Pharisees call him teacher and say, you got to shut them up. Do you hear what they're saying? But he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And what an amazing picture that would have been. I would have loved it if Jesus had just go and everybody got quiet. And then you hear a chorus of stones, you know, just singing his praises because it had to happen this day, this way. He isn't just fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9. He is fulfilling all sorts of prophecy. And from this point on, this last week, we will see dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies directly related to the coming and the, the death of Messiah and his resurrection fulfilled. Well, as they draw near, we see his heart, verse 41. They draw near, he sees the city and begins to weep over it. It's interesting to go through and see what things the gospel writers record that made Jesus weep. But I got to tell you, they didn't record it all because we know he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And then he begins to lament. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you, your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus heart is breaking because he sees what's coming and check. And, and don't miss this. He holds them responsible to know. Now, we're going to deal with this issue of the, you know, destruction of the city and the temple and all the things that accompany it. When we get to chapter 21, you can read ahead. Don't start now, but later in the day, chapters 20, chapters 21. You should be reading, if you can, these last few chapters again and again, familiarizing yourself with them. You'll get so much more out of these studies. But he holds them responsible to know the times in which they were living. And I believe he does that for us too. And that's why we want to know Luke 21 and Matthew 24 and, and Mark 13 and, and uh, 2 Peter 2, which we'll be looking at this Wednesday night and the book of Revelation and all those passages that, that point to what's lying ahead. Well, he holds them responsible and so with us. Well, he went into the temple, we read in verse 45, and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written... My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
John tells us that Jesus did this very thing at the beginning of his ministry. What's he doing? He comes to the temple. This was the place that was built in the city called by God's name in the country set aside by God and given to Israel. That they would have a land, that he would have a capital, that he would have a temple, that he could make his presence known, that people could approach and learn of him and come to know his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace. And so he goes early on and he cleanses the temple because he's going to be there teaching and sharing. And he, he comes in and he sees something that probably started right. People traveled great distances. They needed to offer a lamb or if they were poor, some turtle doves. And they needed to exchange their coin for a coin that was acceptable to the temple treasury. And so no doubt people said, well, we need to facilitate that. But but by the time Jesus was on the scene, well, there's all these people just lining their pockets. They're getting rich from from taking advantage of people that are coming to try to connect with and, and worship the Lord. That's something else that doesn't just break his heart. It makes him mad. And we see it. He's driving him out. He did it early on. He's doing it yet again. And he's saying, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You know, Solomon knew when he was building the temple that God didn't dwell in temples made with hands, but he knew God would show up and God would make his presence known and his pleasure or displeasure known. But you know where God does dwell? First Corinthians 3 says God dwells in you and in me. You are the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's 1 Corinthians 3.16, by the way. 1 Corinthians 6.19 speaks to, to another reality. That first, by the way, speaks to the reality of us being the temple of God corporately. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? I talked about this earlier, and you are not your own. You've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So what does he require? We offer these bodies a living sacrifice. We offer the sacrifice of praise. We come to him offering what he's bought, what he's purchased for his use and his pleasure. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to him. You know, Jesus always divided the crowd. And while he came to draw people to him, he was well aware some would reject him. Many would reject him, but he always divided the crowd and it divides this way. There are those who hate him and there are those who love him. There are those who reject him and there are those who receive him. There are those who who um, despise him and there are those who represent him. And he says there's no gray area in between. You're against him or you're for him. You're you're you're, you know, resisting him or you're submitted to him. And so the question for each of us today as believers, are we like Zacchaeus, at least realizing there's a call on our life, that that there's a plan for our life, and it's probably a lot better than than the life we've lived or, or even envisioned? 
Are we willing to let Jesus just clean house and take, take uh, you know, what he's purchased and, and let him transform and use it to his glory? And then if you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, be sure of this, today is the day of salvation. Three times in Hebrews, he says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. John 1 verses 10 and 11 have always greatly saddened me. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, I really can't properly compare this to anything that you and I would ever experience in our lives. But I guess, try to imagine coming home from work one day and your entire family does not know you and wants nothing to do with you. That's about the closest I can come. Speaking of his own, these same people went a lot further than just not receiving him. They put him to death. Yet in our study today, we saw Jesus weeping over these same people, and he was fully aware of what they were going to do to him. Think of him weeping over them, along with his words from the cross where he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you can begin to get an idea truly of what his heart for humanity really is. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.